Okay, we are uh, in Romans chapter 8, and we are uh, on the last few verses of Romans chapter 8. Some of the better known verses in the Bible. And uh, also, I'm sure probably for some of us, our favorite verses. And... uh, So, if we finish today, then uh, next week we'll start uh, Romans chapter 9, which is kind of a major break in the book of Romans. And uh, uh, it actually flows quite naturally from the things that he says in Romans chapter 8, which we'll talk about, but, uh, but it is a, a major theme break uh, for us. <laughs> but uh, we've been looking the last uh, few weeks at uh, verses 28 uh, through the end of the chapter. And so let's pick it up and begin reading in 28 and read the rest of the chapter. Uh, Last week we looked at verses 33 and 34. And uh, today I'd like to pick up with 35 and and, uh, see we may make it to the end of the chapter. If not, we'll finish the chapter next week. So he says in verse 28, And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. For whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, so that He would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom He predestined, He also called, and these whom He called, He also justified, and These whom He justified, He also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare His own Son, but delivered Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is He who died, yes, rather who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who intercedes for us. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Just as it is written, for your sake we are being put to death All day long we are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through Him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels nor principalities, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Okay, uh, last week we, the last couple of weeks we were looking at verses uh, 31 through 34. Last week we looked at 33 and 34. So what are the things you remember that we've been talking about the last last week, particularly in the last couple of weeks? that we've been covering. Verse 
over who the judge was who is bringing the charges. Okay. Okay. So we have a uh, we have kind of a courtroom scene because Paul is using uh, Paul is using all these kind of legal type terms or terms that are used in a legal context, and so we can kind of picture ourselves in a courtroom scene here. And we kind of imagined ourselves individually being in the dock, so to speak. We're the ones that are on trial in the court. And we considered the various actors or players in a court. Okay, And so one of the questions that came up was, uh, was when we stand before, judge, before the judgment, uh, who, who are the ones who would bring charges against us? And we mentioned several different possibilities of the ones who might bring a charge against us. What, remember what some of those were we talked about? Our own conscience. Okay. One of them is our own conscience. We stand there before, you know, we stand before the judgment seat. You know, you think about standing before the judgment seat of God and you just think, you know, that your own conscience would just tell you you know, you see a holy God there and you're just, your conscience would just speak to, the, to your sin and would bring up your sin and would accuse you. Uh, who else might accuse us? Okay. Unbelievers. People in the world might accuse us. Particularly people in the world that we've had interaction with or that we've, uh, that we've crossed paths with in our lives. And maybe... There are instances and situations in our life where we've not been completely right in our dealings with people in the world. And, uh, and so they might have a reason when we stand before God and we stand there uh, to be judged, they might have a reason to point a finger at us and say, well, you know, there's Rick. And, you know, when, when I was in this situation or that situation, he really, he really blew it. You know, he really let me down or he betrayed me or he... He, he wronged me in some way. And so, uh, and I'm sure we all have people in the world. Unfortunately, it's true. I think we all have people probably in the world who might be able to point a finger against us when we stand in judgment. Who else? Okay. Uh, fellow Christians <laughs> might be able to do so. Okay. Uh, who else? Okay, okay, good. All right. We did. We talked about the accuser of the brethren. So there's Satan himself and you know, and Revelation calls him the accuser of the brethren. So so uh, him and all his demonic hosts are ones who we would think might be able to bring a charge against us. But all of this, all these ones we mentioned still leave out the really big one. And the really big one is what? Who? God Himself. Yeah. God is the one who we would think when we stand in judgment would be the one who really has, really has, uh, we have really offended. David said, against thee and thee only have I sinned and done this evil in thy sight. And, uh, and so, God certainly would have a reason, if anyone would have a reason to bring a charge against us. And so Paul says, in light of that, he says, when we stand in this kind of imaginary courtroom, if you will, 
he asks the question, who will bring a charge against us? And as we mentioned, it's a rhetorical question. The implied answer is no one. And the question is, why is it that no one can bring a charge against me? Okay, what's the reason he gives? God is the one who does it. So the one who is in the best place, the most, in, the the who is really in a place to bring a charge against me, instead of bringing a charge against me, when he comes into the courtroom as the test, as the witness against me, or as the one who might be a witness against me, instead of coming in and being a witness against me, he comes in and says, "Excuse me, but I've justified that person. I've made that person righteous." Okay. So, if God in this courtroom scene, if God the Father Himself is the witness, the prosecutor, if you will, the one who might bring charges but who doesn't because He's justified us, then who, if, if He is the witness, who is the judge in the courtroom? Jesus Himself. Okay, this is this, we see this throughout Scripture that Jesus is the one who ultimately is going to be our judge. He says, uh, he says uh, in the Gospels, he says, he says, the Father has given all judgment to the Son. And over and over again throughout the New Testament, we see that Christ is the one who is ultimately going to be the judge because He's earned that right. He's earned that office because of, his, uh, because of what He did at the cross. And so He is the judge. And if... And if there is no one who can bring a charge against me or no one who will bring a charge against me because I've been declared justified by God, the next question then Paul asks in the next verse, in verse 35 there, is who is the one who will condemn me? Who is the judge who will condemn me? Again, the implied answer is there is no judge who will condemn me. And the reason for that is because the judge who is in the place to condemn me has instead what? Pardon? Uh, what's he say? Who will condemn me? It is Jesus Christ who what? Died. Raised. And intercedes. Yes. Four things about Christ that assure us that when we stand before, when the believer, when the child of God stands before the judgment seat of Christ, he will not be condemned because the judge himself is the very one who died for us, whose resurrection is evidence that, he, that we were justified. He was raised again, he says in Romans 4, because of our justification. He is the one who is at the right hand of the Father. As I said last week, if you can use this term with God, he's in cahoots with the Father on this deal. Okay? It's a conspiracy of innocence. Okay? The two of them have agreed together that I am not guilty. Both the witness and the judge have agreed together that I am not that I am not guilty. And then we had the fact, in addition to that, that this one who judges me is constantly interceding for me. Now what does that mean? And we talked about that. What is what are the what is what is Christ interceding for us? Okay. 
we went back to John chapter 17 and we looked at some of the things that Jesus prayed in John 17. And we can assume, I think, quite safely that those are the things that He continues to pray for us. Because when He prayed those things in John 17 for His disciples, He said, I'm not only praying these things for those, these ones that You gave to Me, these disciples, but I'm praying them for all of those who will believe through their Word. So these are the kinds of things that Jesus prays for for His children, for or for His brothers, I should say, and for, uh, for those who have believed in Him, and one of the things that He prays is that we would be one. Okay? Not only that we would be one with one another, but that we would be one with the Father and with the Son, that we would be united with them in glory. He prays that we would be with Him. He says, my prayer is that they will be with me where I am. He's praying that we'll make it to heaven, so to speak. Okay? These are the kind of things that He's interceding for us. We also talked about the fact that, uh, as John says, he's an advocate for us when we sin. So when we sin, we know that he stands not only as our judge, but he stands as our advocate. So if God the Father were, so to speak, in our little courtroom thing, if God the Father, so to speak, were the, uh, is the prosecutor, is the witness who could be a witness if he wished, could be a witness against us, but has chosen rather to justify us. But we have the Father who's kind of the pros- on the prosecuting side. We have the Son who not only is the judge, but He is our advocate. He is our defense attorney. Okay? And so He is pleading our case and pleading His blood and, 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 and pleading the fact that He has died for us in order that we might just be justified, that His resurrection is proof that we are justified. And so Paul's conclusion is that for the child of God, for the person who has placed their faith in Christ, that person is absolutely, eternally secure in the love of God. Okay? That's where he's going with this thing, right? The question is, with all the junk that goes on in life and all the junk that goes on in, in, as we live our lives, and even, even with our sin that we commit, not, not, not even speaking about the sin we committed before we were saved, but, but after we saved, we continue to sin and we continue to fail. But even with all of that, What Paul is teaching us here is that we are absolutely secure in the love of God because there is no one who will bring a charge against us and there is no one who will condemn us because God has justified us and Christ our judge has died for us. So what do we have to fear in reference to our sin? So... So, as I was saying last week towards the end of the lesson, we were talking about, uh, about this issue of the security of the believer in, in the love of God. Okay. But then we kind, of, we kind of stopped and we thought a little bit towards the end about, okay, this, this doctrine, and people refer to it as in different ways. Some people call it the doctrine of eternal security. Some people call it the perseverance of the saints. Some people call it the security of the believer. You know, I don't know what your favorite term is for this idea or for this doctrine, uh, but uh, but we talked about 
we talked about kind of two groups of people that assail that doctrine, that attack the doctrine of the security of the believer. And, and who would be those who would attack the doctrine of the security of the believer? Everybody's quiet. They go, oh, I have no idea who would do that. Well, obviously, there are people who don't believe it, right? There's some people who simply, when they read the Bible, they see certain passages or whatever. And to them, those passages seem to say that, uh, that a person could lose their salvation. Okay, and and I have a great deal of respect for those people. There are some great saints in the history of the church who have taught and believed that you could lose your salvation. I grew up in a fellowship of believers that taught that you could lose your salvation. Okay, so there are a lot of people out there who think who do not believe the doctrine of the security of the believer or the perseverance of the saints and. And so they would be opposed to it and and would uh, would raise objections to it. And I can respect that. I disagree with them. And I think they're misreading the verses that they use. But I respect them and I appreciate, nevertheless, their fellowship and their zeal and their love uh, for God and for Christ and for the gospel of Christ. But we have another group of people who assail the doctrine and I'm not nearly as sympathetic with them. And who is that? Total unbelievers. Okay, well, yeah, total unbelievers. Okay. Uh, of course, I have sympathy for them because they don't know the gospel. I wasn't thinking about them particularly. Some of these people I'm thinking about may be unbelievers. Probably some of them are. But, but one group of people that are the most threatening to this doctrine of the security of the believer are the people who say they believe it. Right? They're the people who say, well... Once saved, always saved. You know, so if I've walked the aisle, if I've made a profession of faith, if I've signed the little confession card or whatever, I'm saved and I can live any way I want to live. Those are the people who do the most damage to the doctrine of the security of believer. Because they give us the impression that it's actually possible for somebody to be saved then live like a pagan and go to heaven. And the Bible is very clear that is not the case. When someone is saved, they're saved. Now, they do sin. We've made that pretty clear. They do falter. They do fail. But a believer does not live like a pagan. And if someone says, well, I was, you know, when I was a kid, I walked down the aisle and I... You know, I made a profession of faith and I got the little, you know, I got the little cross or whatever that they award, you know, when you get, and I was baptized and so I'm saved. But you can't see any difference in their life between them and a complete unbeliever. Uh, chances are they are not a believer. And those are the people who really damage the doctrine of eternal security because those who are on the line who question whether or not the believer is secure, they look at people like that and they go, well, that can't be right. It can't be right that somebody can live like a pagan and go to heaven. Okay? And I agree with them. That can't be right. Okay? And uh, scriptures are pretty clear on that. So, 
So we have this doctrine of eternal security, the doctrine of the security of the believer, and I think Paul is very clear on it, and he's going to hammer it home even more in the verses that we're looking at today in these last uh, five verses or so of Romans chapter 8. And, uh, and so one of the things we talked about is what Paul is, uh, in the last couple of weeks, is what Paul is trying to do is to establish in the heart and the mind of the Romans these Roman Christians to establish in their hearts that now having been saved, starting all the way back in Romans chapter 1 and remembering how pagan we were and how unsaved we were and how desperate we were and then we then uh, then comes the gospel in Romans chapter 3 and and then the, the, the truth of justification by faith in Romans chapter 3 and Romans chapter 4 and then we get into the whole kind of what it's like to be a Christian in Romans chapter 5. We deal with the whole question in chapter 6 and chapter 7 about the law and, and where does the law fit into this whole thing and how does the law work as a schoolmaster to bring people to faith in Christ. And, uh, and then we move on into chapter 8, more of the idea of what is it like to be a believer what is, what is the believer's life like? And it's a life in the Spirit. Romans chapter 8, over and over and over again, the idea of the Spirit, the indwelling Spirit, the, the interceding Spirit, the working of the Spirit, the living life in the Spirit. This is the life of the believer. And Paul is writing these things to these Romans, and now he wants to assure them that once this issue is settled in your life, once you have been justified by faith, you are secure as a child of God in the love of God. You never have to sweat that again. You never have to worry about it. There's a lot of things we have to worry about in life. A lot of things we have to think about. A lot of things we have to struggle with. But one thing as a Christian you never have to wonder is does God love me? Have I done something or has something happened to me that is evidence that somehow I slipped out of that group of people whom God loves? And Paul wants to assure us absolutely irrevocably that that's an impossibility. And so he picks it up in, in verse 35. And in verse 32, 3 and 34, he was dealing with the question, the issue of men's and women's sin, of believers' sin. And will that sin somehow, uh, will that sin somehow, when it finally comes to the final judgment, will that keep them, uh, will that keep them from God? Will that keep them uh, from experience the love of God forever? And his answer, of course, is no. Now in chapter, in verses 35 and the end, he, he deals with all the circumstances and persons in our life that we encounter. And is, are there any circumstances? Are there any people in our life? Or I should say persons, because we're not just talking about, in these verses, not just about humans, but we're even talking about angelic spiritual beings. Is there any kind of a being or any kind of a circumstance that could somehow separate me from the love of God? And Paul's answer again is emphatically, as, as we see in these verses, is emphatically no. But one thing I want to do before we get into the details of this passage is I want to think about this guy that wrote this stuff. I want to think about Paul. And I want you to remember when, when Paul was converted and the story of his conversion is back in, 
in Acts chapter 9. And, uh, and you remember he had that encounter with Christ on the Damascus Road and then he went on into Damascus and he was waiting there in Damascus uh, for, uh, for somebody to come and help him and explain things to him and baptize him and that sort of thing. And, uh, and so God goes to, uh, uh, goes to speak to uh, uh, a gentleman and he says uh, in, uh, in verse uh, 10, it says that there, now there was a disciple at Damascus, Ananias, and the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Get up and go to the street called Straight and inquire at the house of Judas for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. You can imagine how Ananias was just really thrilled to hear this. You know, <laughs> this commission from God to go talk to, tall, uh, to Paul of Tarsus, or, or excuse me, uh, Saul of Tarsus. Uh, and it says, For he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many things about this, many about this man, how much harm he did to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and to the kings and to the sons of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. I think that's an interesting thing. Was that your conversion experience? When you were converted, you know, the preachers up there firing away, preaching hell, brimstone, whatever. I don't know how you were saved. But, but you walk the aisle and you get down there to the, to, the, uh, to the front of the church and there's the pastor standing there and he says, you know, what I want to do is I want to tell you about all the things you're going to suffer for Christ's sake. <laughs> well, I'm just kind of glad that's not how I came to Christ. <laughs> I'm not sure even at my young age how I would have responded to that. But he says to Ananias, he says, i got a lot to show Paul about all the things that he's going to suffer for my name's sake. So when Paul starts out at the very outset of his Christian walk, he starts out with the understanding that suffering is part of the territory. And so he goes through his life and his ministry. And then later on, he writes to the Corinthians. And if you'll turn over to 2 Corinthians, and there's a couple passages in Second Corinthians, I've been thinking a lot about lately, and uh, and I want to uh, I, I, I want to think about them again today, because they tell us a lot about Paul, but they also tell us a lot about this whole idea of suffering. But in Second Corinthians chapter four, and you'll remember when he's writing to the Corinthian church in Second Corinthians, he's got a problem there because he's got some people there in Corinth who are denying his apostleship. They're uh, they're, they're claiming themselves to be apostles and they're saying that Paul is a false apostle or that he's a fake uh, and he's not a very good speaker and, and uh, he's just, you know, he, just, he, just he just doesn't have it. Okay? And so it's this accusation that Paul is receiving that he's hearing about and people trying to lead away the Corinthian believers. And so he's writing to them and he, and he develops this theme in a couple places. But in chapter 4, uh, he says uh, he's, he's talking about his own weaknesses, his own and just his own human weakness. 
And he says in verse 7, he says, But we have this treasure in earthen vessels, so that the surpassing greatness of the power might be of God and not from ourselves. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not despairing. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying about in the body the dying of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. For we who live are constantly being delivered over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh, so death works in us, but life in you. So what Paul is saying here is he's detailing in a very abbreviated fashion all the junk that he's had to deal with as a child of God since he came, since he came to Christ. And throughout the course of his life and throughout the course of his ministry and his apostleship, all this stuff he's gone through. And he says it. He says, I've been afflicted in every way. He says, I've been crushed. I've been perplexed. You know, now, now Paul's kind of an extreme case, of course, but when I think about those verses, or when I think about those words, I think, hey, I can identify with that. You know, I can identify with times in my life when, when I was perplexed. Have you ever been spiritually perplexed? Have you ever been in a situation where your head's just kind of reeling and you're just going, God, I don't understand this. You know, I thought, God, this, but... It didn't turn out that way. And I don't understand this. And you're perplexed. And Paul says, many times I've been perplexed, but he says, I've never been despairing. He says, he says I've been inflicted in every way. Well, now, we've got to admit, Paul's probably exaggerating here. He's not been afflicted in every way, has he? But he says, I've been afflicted in every way, but he says, I've, I've never been crushed. I've never been totally wiped. So I've been struck down. But he says, I've not been destroyed. But then he goes on and he says something very interesting. He says, because he says, I'm constantly carrying about in my body the dying of Christ. So what Paul says is, my experience as an apostle, as a Christian, my experience is that I'm constantly having to face the reality of Christ's death in my daily experience, in my body. I'm having to encounter the death of Christ. Reminds me of another place where Paul says, I die daily. And so there's this idea for Paul in his experience of, of all this junk going on in his life and he's daily confronted with the necessity of dying with Christ, of dying to self. But that's not just an end in itself. He dies to himself. He's dying with Christ on a daily basis through all this stuff he's suffering. He's dying on a daily basis for what end? For what purpose? What happens? Okay. That the life of Christ could be manifested through us. And he gets down to the end of those verses. He says, so... I'm experiencing death, but the end result is you're experiencing life. So, for Paul, 
He's going through all this stuff, this perplexity, this affliction, this being struck down, the persecution. He goes through all of this stuff. And, but he says, and so, so just daily I'm having to die. But I'm doing this because as I die, the life of Christ is manifested in me. Other people see Christ's life in me. And as they see Christ's life in me, then they get to partake in the life of Christ. Okay. Well, I just have a problem with this passage. Because I just think Paul's exaggerating a little bit. I mean, after all, we, you know, we all have bad days, right? And we say, oh, you know, just, this is a terrible day. You know, well, it's really not a terrible day. You know, just, you know, in the grand scheme of things, have we ever really had a terrible day? Well, maybe a few of us have had one or two, you know, but we probably say it a whole lot more often than it happens. So I wonder, is Paul exaggerating here? Well, when we get to the end of 2 Corinthians, he gets a little more specific. Turn over to chapter 11. And you might wonder why I'm talking all about Paul when we're supposed to be in Romans chapter 8, but you'll see eventually. I'll let you see that. We'll get to that. Okay? Uh, but in, in chapter 11, uh, here again, he's really confronting now. He's confronting directly on this accusation that he's a false apostle and that these other guys out here really have the scoop. And, uh, and so he's, he's, uh, he's confronting this directly. And... Uh, and he says in, uh, in verse 21, uh, pick it up in the middle of the verse, he says, But in whatever respect anyone else is bold, I speak in foolishness. I am just as bold myself. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they descendants of Abraham? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I speak as if insane. I more so. In far more labors. In far more imprisonments. Notice he doesn't say, I've been imprisoned. He says, far more imprisonments. Apparently it's happened on more than one occasion. Beaten times without number. Often in danger of death. Five times I've received from the Jews 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I've spent in the deep. I've been on frequent journeys, in dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangers among false brethren. I have been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. That word there translated exposure is the word that's translated in our passage in Romans as nakedness. Apart from such external things, there is the daily pressure on me of concern for all the churches. Who is weak without my being weak? Who is led into sin without my intent? Concern. Now, I read that passage and I go, okay. I'll concede, Paul, you were not exaggerating in chapter 4. <laughs> I mean, this is, this, this is a pretty stunning list, is it not? 
This is a pretty stunning list. I mean, here is a guy who, <laughs> at the very outset of his walk with Christ, is told he's going to be shown what things he needs to suffer for Christ. And now, well, late into his ministry, he can write this letter to the Corinthians and he can say all these things that he's experienced. He's been in all these dangers. He's been dangers in the city and dangers in the country and dangers from his countrymen and dangers from the Gentiles and dangers from rivers and dangers from robbers and, you know, and on all these journeys. And he says, I've, he says, I've been beaten times without number. He says, I've been, uh, I've been uh, uh, lashed with a whip uh, 39 times, uh, five times, uh, 39 times each. And, uh, and then he says, I've been beaten with a rod uh, three times. And I find this interesting. He says, I've been beaten times without number. I've been beaten with a rod three times. So what happened to the times he was beaten without a number? What's he talking about? He's talking about just beaten up. He just somebody walked up to him and clobbered him. You know? <laughs> somebody just walked up to him and just pummeled him. Okay. Times without number. He's, he can't even count the times. He's been out there sharing the gospel of Christ and somebody just come up and just punched him in the face. And then it says, he says, uh, five times I've received 39 lashes. Okay. Well, you know what they do when they do that, right? They take you to a whipping post. They tie you to a whipping post. Of course, they don't do this anymore, at least not civilized society. But they tell you, and they tie you to a whipping post, right? And then they strip you down to your waist so your bare back is exposed, right? And then they would whip you with a whip 39 times, okay? With the intent of the whip tearing open your skin, okay? I, I know this is gruesome. I don't like thinking about it either, okay? But Paul has undergone this. So he, undergo, he underwent it the first time. And then at some point later in his life, after those wounds have healed, scarred over and healed, but they're still there, it happens again. And those old wounds are peeled back again. And then after they heal, it happens again. And after those heal, it happens again. And after those heal, it happens again. Presumably after they heal. <laughs> we don't even know that for sure. Well, what, what's the point? The point I'm trying to make is that when Paul says that every day he carried about in his body the dying of Christ, he is not exaggerating. Because he has all this stuff. Some of it is direct, overt persecution. Some of it is just junk that happens in the course of life. Dangers from rivers. Dangers from robbers. Right? They're just some of the things that happen. Often without food. Often in times of in conditions of exposure, this is the experience of the Apostle Paul, and this is the man who says to us in Romans chapter eight, "Who can separate us from the love of Christ? Can tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine?" or nakedness, or peril, or sword. And he lists seven things there in his first list. He lists seven things there. And at the time he writes these things, 
we know that Paul, the apostle who's writing them, has personally experienced six of those seven things multiple times in his life. The last one, the sword, you only get to experience once. <laughs> and he experienced that. We believe, by tradition, he was beheaded in Rome by a sword. So here's a guy who, when he writes to us in Romans chapter 8, and he says, Who can separate us from the love of Christ? Can tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? As he lists those things, he has been through it all. And he knows from experience those things cannot separate you from the love of God. Now, that's pretty encouraging to me because I've never had to go through all that stuff. <laughs> I've gone through lesser versions of some of those things, right? I've been perplexed. You know, I've had a little bit of persecution, you know, a little bit of people saying, you know, funny things about me or whatever, you know, or whatever. You know, I've had a little bit of what Paul's had on a few of those areas. And when I go through it, it's, it can be a little frightening. It can be a little intimidating. It can be a little difficult, right? We all know that. We're not denying that these things are tough to go through. But what Paul is saying is that the child of God never needs to fear that any of these things will either separate us from the love of God, nor are they evidence that we have been separated from the love of God, right? They will not separate us from the love of God. In fact, he goes on then in the next verse, right? And he says, just as it is written, for thy sake, we are being put to death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. Now, as you read through Romans uh, chapter 8, that verse might kind of just kind of jump out at you a little bit. And you go, why is that there? You know, it's just kind of, kind of random sticks this verse from Psalm, this quotation from the Psalm. He just kind of randomly sticks it in here about all these things that cannot separate us. Well, he's got this list of seven. And then he's going to give us a list of ten. But in between them all, he just kind of sticks in this random verse out of the Psalms. Why does he do that? What's his point? If you go back and look at Psalm 44, it's a story of believers who are living in a country that's gone wrong. Okay. They're under the judgment. Of God, and they've been carried away, and yet they're being delivered. Okay, okay, excellent. Okay, this is this is believers who, as Gary says, are caught up in a country that's gone haywire. Okay, but these are the children of God. These are the ones among the Israelites who have been faithful to God, and they get swept away in God's judgment, and they get carried off into captivity. But they have remained faithful to God. And the psalmist cries out there in the, I think it's in the 22nd verse, when he says, he says, we are, he says, for your sake we are being put, being put to death every day. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. The point is, is that this was the experience of the faithful people of God in the days of the psalmist. 
And so Paul is saying to us, this, folks, is the normal Christian life. That's what he's saying. And, I, you know, I just think when, when Paul writes there twice there in, uh, in First Corinthians, Second Corinthians chapter 4, when he writes twice there about carrying in his body, the ongoing carrying on in his body of the death of Christ, I think he must have had Psalm 44 in the back of his mind. We are being put to death all day long. Yeah, well, I'm sorry, I can only be put to death once. <laughs> well, no. The believer, the believer's life is the life of dying to self all day long. Now, some days it's more upfront than others, right? There are some days when you have to do it more than others. But the believer's life is the life of denying self. The believer's life is a life of carrying in our bodies the dying of Christ all day long, every day. And so what Paul wants us to understand is this list of stuff that he just listed, this isn't just for him. This is the normal Christian life. Now, not to the extent, obviously, that Paul does. We don't all experience all of the stuff all the time that Paul experienced. Paul's kind of an extreme example. Paul's kind of the, the he's kind of the the case that you look at and you say, well if Paul then me, you know. If Paul can do this, I can get through what I gotta go through. Okay. Paul's kind of the extreme case. Kind of like when Paul says at one point, you know, well, if God can forgive me, he can forgive anybody. Okay. Well it's kind of that same type of principle. I'm the extreme case. And if I can go through all of this and can tell you with absolute confidence that I am still wrapped in the arms of God's love. I know you're going through tough stuff. I know it's hard. I know oftentimes you have to make the choice that if I'm going to live faithful to God today, I'm going to have to die to self. I'm going to have to crucify the flesh. I'm going to have to do that today. I'm going to have to do it in relationship to my wife or to my husband or to my children or to my parents. I'm going to have to do it in relationship to my neighbors. I'm going to have to do it in relationship to the people at work. I'm going to have to do it in relationship to my government. I'm going to have to do it over and over again in many different situations in life today. This day, I'm going to have to say no to my flesh, no to my body, no to the cravings of the things that I would, would normally crave, some of them evil, some of them totally good. Sometimes I'm going to have to go hungry. Sometimes I'm going to have to go thirsty. Sometimes I'm going to have to go naked, that is, to be exposed. These are the choices that I have to make if, in fact, I want the life of Christ to be manifest in me. It's a normal Christian life. You know, Rick, <laughs> the fight there is to know when no car. This leads to me that that fight is. Um, because you have you have a situation coming up and you think, well, I could take this comfortable route here, and that really seems to make a lot more sense. And every week, everybody I know does it that way. So I think that's probably the right answer. And you have this potential for suffering and. You don't really know if that's really going to accomplish the good that you just could. You don't know. 
know, so you have this very trouble. Yes. It's so easy to take the and, uh, and because we don't know, it's easy to choose the easy route. Okay. Now, obviously, uh, obviously, in some cases, maybe the easy route is the better route. In some cases. Yeah. <laughs> but what we have to remember is that oftentimes we, we look at we look at the difficult route and we go, well, I'm not sure, I'm not sure how this will really result in the glory of Christ. I'm not sure, you know, I, I don't see, all I see is the suffering. And, and what we have to realize is that oftentimes we do not see and we will not see till eternity the eternal results that that choice made. Yes, uh, Anne. Sometimes there is no other route. I mean, because sometimes things happen to you or So really, we face we, we face both. So we face both situations. We face situations where we've got a choice to make, and we face situations where there's no choice. We just and that leads us to think about these things in this list, and, and we'll just talk a little bit about these, and then we'll stop for today, and we'll finish these verses next week. But he says these seven things that he lists. He says he, the first thing he mentions is tribulation, and you know, of course that brings up. And I don't want to imply that 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 these seven things are all distinct. They overlap. There's not a clear line of demarcation between these things. But one of the things that's implied in that word tribulation, I like this. One of the things that's implied in it is the idea of of uh, of pressing or pressure. It's just a pressing on you. So it's a situation, something you encounter, some trouble or experience in your life, and it just presses on you. And it's just always there, and it's a weight. And it's always in the back of your mind. Even when it's not in the front of your mind, it's always in the back of your mind. And it can be any kind of situation. It can be land in Alabama. You know, it can be any kind of thing that's just always weighing there, and we can't shake it. Okay? And God says these tribulations, these things that are pressing on us. There's just a weight on us. And as we go through life, we may be shopping in Walmart. We may be sitting at our desk doing our work. We may be doing any number of things and our mind is really here. But weighing in the back of our mind, weighing on our mind is this struggle, this problem, this crisis, this difficulty in our life. And then there's the idea of distress. And I like this one too. I mean, I don't like it, but I like it because of what it communicates. It, 
one one of the things that's implied in this word is the idea of of a of being confined to a narrow space. I've discovered late in life that I have a tendency towards claustrophobia. I didn't know this, but I probably did it to myself. I told this story many times before. I don't know if I told it in class or not, but but uh, when I was uh, when I was young and foolish, uh, I used to go cave exploring, and there was a cave in Colorado Springs. Uh, that we used to go to, and, and you'd kind of get in the main front part of the cave, but to really get to the fun part, the back part of the cave, you had to go through what was called the stovepipe. Okay? And it was called the stovepipe for a reason. Okay? It was about this big around, I'm not exaggerating about this, just wide enough for my shoulders, okay? And it went so many feet, like 20 feet or so, then it made a right angle turn. And then made another right angle turn. That right angle was about a foot. So it came about 20 feet or so. I don't know how long. 10, 15, 20 feet. Then you got a right angle turn for a foot. And then you got another right angle turn. And it's as big as your shoulders. Just big enough to scoot through. You know, maybe a little bigger than that. But, you know, it's been a year since I've been there. So I like to exaggerate. But, but you know, you go through there. And before you go through, the first time you're going in there, the guy who's been through before, he tells you, okay, pick which way you want to be facing because you're going to have to make this... 90, 90 degree turn, you know, and I'm going, my body doesn't bend that way either way I go, you know, <laughs> but you go and you go through it, you know, and you get kind of in the middle there where your body's bending two directions at once and you're thinking, why am I here? Why do I do this? I'm an idiot, you know, what if I, what if the earth moves right now, you know, all these horrible thoughts come to your mind. I had I had nightmares about the stovepipe for many years after I quit going in that stupid cave. Okay. That's just stressful. When you're confined. And sometimes we find ourselves in situations like we just find ourselves in situations where we're confined, where we're restrained, where we're pinned in. And some of you are going through stuff like that right now. There's no situation like that that will ever separate you from the love of God. Persecution speaks, of course, for itself. He mentions famine. The idea is going hungry. And I think of the psalmist's promise. He says, I've been young, now I'm old, yet I've not seen the righteous forsaken nor his seed begging bread. Or I think about what Jesus says in Matthew chapter uh, 6 in the Sermon on the Mount when he says, you know, uh, if you... uh, 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 how does he say it there? 633. Uh, 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 <laughs> now, but the idea is uh, that uh, if you seek God and His righteousness, all these things will be added unto you. He talks about not worrying about food and covering and that sort of thing. Okay, and then and then Paul says in another place, he says, "With food and covering, let us be content." So we have all these promises in Scripture, but there apparently are times in the Christian experience, even with all those promises. When the believer experiences deprivation. He mentions two things specifically. He mentions the very two things that he said we ought to be content with. He now indicates there are times when for the sake of Christ, we will do without food and covering. And even when that is happening, I have not been separated from the love of Christ. And then he mentions peril. <laughs> we live in Oklahoma, folks. <laughs> you know, we live in the land of EF5 tornadoes. You know, we know peril, right? Okay. 
But there are all kinds of perils that we face. There are actual physical perils. There are financial perils. There are relational perils. There are health perils. There are just all kinds of perils we face. Paul listed all kinds of them in that passage in 2 Corinthians 11. He talks about dangers from robbers and dangers from rivers and dangers from wilderness and all kinds of perils. And there wasn't a single one of those perils that he faced that he ever that he was ever separated from the love of God. And finally, ultimately, the sword. And even that does not separate us from the love of God. This is the life of the believer. This is the normal life of the believer. Going through this stuff and yet never being separated from the love of God. Well, so you can go through all this stuff and you can just go through it. You can just kind of endure it, right? And just get off. I'll just get through this. I can just get through this and breathe again, okay? But that is not the normal Christian life. The normal Christian life is not merely to experience this stuff and survive it. He comes now to verse 37 and he says, For we all, but in all these things, he says, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. Well, there's a lot packed into that verse, so we're not even going to touch that today. We'll work on that next week, okay? But I'll just give you a little clue. That word there, overwhelmingly conquer, is actually one word in the Greek, and it has a little prefix at the beginning of it, hooper, from which we get our English prefix, what? Hyper. Okay? We'll pick up the idea of hyper-conquerors next week. Okay?